0: Our scripture today is from the Old Testament, the seventh chapter of Joshua, beginning at the second and reading through the ninth verse. You will remember that in the sixth chapter, the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. It was noise and noise and more noise, and the presence of Hebrew God, and the the Walls of Jericho just sort of disintegrated. And now Joshua has sent spies up to a little town called Ai. It's about like uh, Austell to the city of Atlanta. Ai was just a little country town up there in the hills. And he sent some spies up there to see how much strength was in this village and there just wasn't much. They came back and said, we don't need to send a big army up there. Let's just send about two or 3,000 men. And so Joshua sent 3,000 and things happened. Listen. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth Avin, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. The men went up and spied out Ai and returned to Joshua and said Let not all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up, just a few. So about three thousand men went up to Ai and from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai, and the men of Ai killed. About thirty-six of them chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim, and slew them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua rent his clothes, fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord until the sun went down. He and the elders of Israel. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord, why hast thou brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Why Would would that we had been content to dwell on the other side of the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned her backs before their enemies? Well, the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And when that is done, what will you do for your great name? Remember that question. The New Testament is from the 12th chapter of John, beginning at the 20th 20th verse, reading through the 26th. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, a a Greek town, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew went with Philip, and they told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him and will honor him abundantly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Spirit of the living God, open our ears that we might hear. Work within our hearts that we might believe and upon our wills that we may be obedient to the words which you speak to us. Grant that your peace shall abide in our hearts to your glory. Amen. It's water, I promise you. <laughs> well, things that happened in Jericho, world-shaking things that happened in Jericho. The walls of the oldest city in the world came tumbling down and every Hebrew had his sword in his hand and they cr- scrambled over the rocks and killed every man, woman, and child in that city. You can judge the value of that. Anyway, everything went as were, was, was ordered. They took all the booty of Jericho and piled it up, all the clothes out of Brookendale, and all the gold out of the First National Bank. and and all the stuff that was in the houses of the people, and just piled it up. for that was to be an endowment for the worship of God throughout their history. Except that one dress, one ingot of gold, and a handful of silver did not get dedicated. Somebody took it. He wanted to dress up his wife, He wanted to increase his bank account a little bit and he wanted to be able to spend a little bit so he just put a few pieces of silver in his pocket and and, and went home. And something happened next. Joshua sent spies to Ai and they came back and said, that's just a little village, we don't have to worry about that. And so they went up and The men of Ai came back, and lo and behold, the Israelites turned their backs and ran. And when Joshua heard of it, he tore his clothes, put dust upon his head, and said to God, What are you going to do now? The Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Jebusites, and any other group ofites that were around knew that God had done it to Jericho, and God had not done it to Ai. What are you going to do now, he said to God, for the honor of your name? And I want that to be your question today. For you see, Scripture has a way of repeating its word to us about who we are and what we're to do. And so I want to sort of make some suggestions. You understand I have no authority to give you orders, but I do have an an ordination to give you some suggestions about what God will do in 2013 and 14 and 25 and 3,000 and whatever in God's eternal plan. And the text is the fourth verse of the 23rd Psalm. He will lead me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I'm not going to talk to you about Picciuni's morality. I'm going to talk to you about central issues in our generation to the glory of God. And the first issue that I want to talk about is that God will lead us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake as we relate ourselves to God's creation. For 175 years or more, humanity has paid little attention to God's creation. We took advantage of it. We exploited it. We used it. For our increase in wealth, we used it for whatever purposes were our own, and we did not use it to the glory of God. Remember that. You see, about 175 years ago, the culture of the whole world got changed. A Scotsman by the name of James Watt made a steam engine You remember that from your history lesson? James Watt invented a steam engine. It was a little thing about 12 feet long, but it had amazing power. And what happened was somebody used that sort of steam engine and built a railroad. And a railroad brought together the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean in the United States. It brought together London and Paris... In Europe, it brought together every country in the world for railroads. Think what that meant. Didn't have to hunch up the horse to the wagon again. Didn't have to have a fast horse or a buggy. You, you just got in the train and went. And from that train, you got into ships at sea, and you got into airplanes that fly, and you don't have to worry much about God when you've got all of that. And you don't have to say this is my father's world when you've got that kind of intellect and power at your disposal. But that was just one. Twenty-five years after James Watt, Eli Whitney developed a cotton gin. Now, that doesn't matter much either to us in this generation, but to my great-great-grandmother, it made a big difference. You see, she had to spend she had, first of all, to take the cotton seed out of the cotton bowl. And then she had to spin the cotton f- film into thread, and then she had to put a loom over here, and she had to use the loom to weave the cloth, and then she could make the garments. You never did that. Eli Whitney made a cotton gin, and it changed everything. Home economics got moved to the cotton mill. Thousands of workers began to work so that mama didn't have to do it. And lo and behold, the whole economic culture of the world changed. And then an a Ohio man by the name of, of McCormick made a wheat reaper before you did it with a scythe and, and that sort of thing. But now... You did it with horses pulling a wheat reaper, and you you picked up the shocks of wheat and stacked them up, and then you loaded them on a wagon and took them to a threshing machine, and you just had that, all that wheat left over, and you could feed the world when before you could not.
1: And when man,
0: humanity, got all that power in our hands, we forgot. We forgot that God's command to His first creation was, "Take care of my creation, reproduce, manage my creation for my glory," and we did not do it. And now we live in a world where, even at Presbyterian Village, we're trying to, to, uh, re-recycle our paper and our tin cans and all of that, so that somehow we might restore to its glory God's creation. And so you can remember that God's first answer in our generation is to take care of what I have entrusted to you, the sun and the moon and the stars and the waters of the rivers and the ocean and the land. That's your job. Obey it. The the second path that I think God is leading us in this generation is a path to an appreciation of God's creation of you and me. You know, we, we sorta of, we sort of have a way of paying too not too much attention to the bigger part of our responsibility to manage our lives to God's glory. In the book of Ecclesiastes, in the first three chapters, there's an interesting quest which the writer of the book talks about. He, he, he wanted to have a life that was full and complete and happy and all that sort of stuff.
1: And so he said, "I'll
0: set out to do it." And he took four roads. The first road he took was a road to Las Vegas. Now, don't I, I know he, he didn't have Las Vegas, but we do. We have all the things that we think will give us pleasure: wine, women, and song, uh, all kinds of music that attracts our attention, but may not be salubrious enough to do us any good. We we just love Las Vegas. All of us love Las Vegas. Nobody does. We want to be happy. We want to be able to do anything we want to do. You know, don't you? I mean, don't you really want to be happy above anything else? You'll do almost anything for pleasure even going to the beach when the sun is a 100. You know, strange people. No, not strange, just ourselves. There's another road he decided to take. It's, it's the road to the schoolhouse. Now I know that, that everybody here is perfectly willing to keep learning. You read your newspaper and You listen to your TV news and you want to keep up with what's going on in the world and I understand that. And he decided he was going to learn everything there was to learn. He read the Oxford Dictionary. He read the Encyclopedia Britannica page after weary page. He just went to school and every school he could enter. He got all the PhDs and that sort of thing that anybody could put after their name. And when he looked at it, after he got all that, he discovered he couldn't talk to anybody because they didn't understand what he was talking about. That's one thing. And the other thing was that even as smart as he was, he wasn't happy. And so he tried another path. He, He took the path to the bank. He's going to get rich. Doesn't matter what methods he uses to get rich, he's going to be the richest man in the world. I mean, Bill Gates has got nothing on him at all, nor does Warren Buffett. He got rich. He could buy anything from anybody that he wanted. He had so much money, he didn't know how to manage it, but it just kept growing. That's one of the things about money when you've got enough, it just keeps growing. And his grew and grew until he was the richest man in the world. And he said to himself, that's just like smoke. And then he decided that he would go to the courthouse. You got to live up to some standards, and he will learn everything he can possibly learn about how people get along with each other, and so he read all the laws and and consulted all the law books and and made three hundred dollars an hour when anybody asked him how much he'd charge the council them and, and 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 all of that, and when he knew all the laws and watched all you people break most of them sooner or later he 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 just smoked. That didn't worth anything. And at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer says there's just one thing left that's important. Love God and obey his commands. You see, when we try to decide these other paths that lead us to smoke, all of us need somewhere a stable foundation for life in obedience to the Creator God. And so, watch the paths that you walk. Glorify God by walking in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Relate your life to the eternal. And then there's another path that God leads us that is the path of righteousness, and that is the path home. One of the most delightful little books that I've ever read is Beside the Bonnie and Briar Bush. If any of you are Scotchmen, you may remember that, that that's one of the classics in the church in Scotland. And it tells the story of a little congregation called Drumtokti, and in it is a very, very wise and very, very hard, rigid elder. He has one daughter her mo- Her mother died soon after she was born, and her father has raised her to be a an example of what a Scottish lassie ought to be. And she has been that for 18 years. And then one night, after her father had gone to bed and she heard his snores, she took her suitcase, and went down to the railroad station, caught the train at 4 o'clock the next morning, ended up with a aunt in London. Poor Lachlan Camel felt broken-hearted. She was his treasure. He had reared her from a child, and he had seen her grow into one of the ideal young women of Scotland, and now she has run away. She isn't there anymore. Percy's angry. He's angry enough to take out the family Bible and scratch through it with his knife until her name is illegible. He'll show her. He grieves in his solitude. He wonders where Flora is. He wonders how she's getting along, but he will not relent and invite her home. Never. One day, one of the members of the Little Kirk in in Drumtachte writes a letter to her sister with whom Flora is living in London and describes what's happening to Lachlan Camel. He just isn't a good man to be around anymore. And so she writes, Flora reads the letter, she gets in the train in London and goes back to her hometown. She gets there after dark. She knows the way from the railroad station to home and she's not at all sure what's going to happen when she gets home. She remembers this rigid nature of her father and the way in which he has so completely controlled her life. But she journeys on slowly through the, the cops until finally he looks and there is a light in the window in the house. She's not sure what that means, but but she hopes. She knocks on the door, and Lachlan goes to the door and confronts his daughter and welcomes her in, sits down in the chair, puts her on his lap, and says the 99 words for I love you that's in the Scottish language. All 99 of them. And then he then goes to the Family Bible opens it and rewrites her name where it belongs so that she is his again. You see, home is where, when you go, they have to take you in. Don't forget that. Home is where, when you go, they have to take you in. I can attest to that. I scared my father half to death by driving up to his house at 4 o'clock one morning in the midst of my schooling life, and and he wasn't exactly sure what that strange vehicle with lights and one on each side was. You see, my father was a farmer, lived way out in the country. But when I knocked on the door, it was opened from the inside. It always is and home is wherever you hang your hat doesn't matter where it is home is where you hang your hat that's where you belong that's where they will accept you and the ultimate home is the one that Jesus talked about when the Greeks came and he said where I am you will where you are, I will be also I had one sister, I had seven brothers, but we all had a sister, just one. The last conversation I had with her before her death at the age of a hundred, she opened the conversation by saying, "Sam, where is heaven Well." Somehow I said, It's where God is. And a smile came over her face, and she said, That's everywhere. That's home. On the night, my best loved brother, when you've got seven brothers, you better have one that's best loved, (laughs) you know. Otherwise, you're overwhelmed. My best-loved brother was 84 years old, and somehow I had the feeling that I needed to go see him. And so I went from Florida to North Carolina and discovered that the night before our arrival, he had a terrible experience and thought he was going to die, but he didn't die that night. The next night, about six o'clock, he had another one of those, quote, spells, and became comatose. His daughter sat on one side of his bed, I sat on the other side of his bed, and we each held a hand. And from six to nine, he stayed in his comatose state. And about nine, maybe a few minutes after... He roused from that state, looked us straight in the eye, and said, I think I have been faithful. I didn't say the right thing, but I said, I know nobody who has been more faithful to their God than you have. He closed his eyes, went back into his comatose state, and two hours later went to discover he discovered the text. You see, he he had told me two years before this that he wanted me to preach his sermon at his death. Now, now, he even gave me the text. He said it's in the book of Job, the 42nd chapter, and the verse. I have heard of you with my ears, but now I see you with my eyes. Ah. That text was enough, and I knew that he was in the presence, following the path all the way to God's home. You can be there too, only believe. Let us pray. Eternal God, we commit ourselves to you and you for your faithful in all things. You encourage us to love you, to obey you, to serve you. And with all our heart, we sometimes at least want to do that. Confirm us in our faith. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.